Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to start a very special series in virtual legality. On your screen right now, you see the logo of a company entitled Raw Fury. And if you aren't familiar with this company, they are a publisher, or as they describe themselves, an unpublisher of video games. On their about page on their website, they call themselves a passion project. We're all about doing what makes us and the people we work with happy. And you can see some of the games that they've published, Atomic Crops, Out There, The Kingdom series, New Lands, Two Crowns. And I've played a number of these games. I've enjoyed a number of these games. You might also note, if you are familiar with the Game Pass ecosystem on the Microsoft Xbox side of things, that a number of these titles have appeared on that service. So they appear to have a fairly close relationship with Microsoft and Game Pass. But while I find funny a little bit of the marketing speak of publishers and unpublishers, and we want to be your friends, and we want mutuality and trust and understanding, I have to say, at the end of last year, they put together a set of documents that really do suggest that that's a truthful stance that they have taken, or at the bare minimum, that they want transparency in the world of development and publishing in video games. This article that's on your screen right now is entitled, Why We Are Publishing Raw Fury's Publishing Agreement. As part of this year's Raw-Sember effort, we've compiled a bunch of trustworthy and well-used templates from different disciplines and areas within Raw Fury on our newly minted Dev Resources page. What might you find there? From templates for financial projections to pitch decks to outsourcing agreements and more. And also, our entire publishing agreement. It's what we would have wanted if we were in a developer's shoes. A lot of the humans working at Raw Fury have at some point been a developer working for some of the most recognized AAA game studios to fledgling indie outfits. Learning which sorts of deals were out there was tough, if not impossible, unless you knew the right people who could then share that information broadly with you. Broadly meaning not the specifics of any given deal, which is always a problem when we're talking business and law. We believe having publisher contracts out in the open helps level the playing field and allows devs to have a more intimate understanding of the machinations of different deals when they start looking for partnerships. Also, it should be noted that Raw Fury probably thinks pretty highly of their deal, or at least how a developer will see their deal. They think it's pretty fair. They think it's going to be attractive to developers. And so they want to have publishers and other developers know that this deal is out there and to potentially have to compete with it or to attract developers just by its being out there in the first place. That all being said, this is exactly the kind of thing I have wanted out there really since the inception of virtual legality. As you probably know and have seen in various episodes in this space, I have sometimes redacted my own contracts, pulled contracts from the SEC and Edgar and other publicly filed domains in order to talk with you about the terms and contours of an agreement, whether in video games or otherwise. But it's always a risk when I'm using my own stuff to redact it properly, make sure I'm not violating any client confidences that nobody can figure out exactly what the specifics of that deal were or who my clients are in specific contexts, et cetera, et cetera. So having a document like this out there is enormously valuable. And I've long wanted to talk with you all about the various components of a publishing agreement like this one. Now, before we get into that, they give you a caveat and it's a justified one. In short, these are templates we have used and are using for our own internal needs. These are form documents. They are not going to match up with the specifics of whatever your video game company or maybe your nascent publishing company 
is going to want to do. One of the reasons I say so often in this space and at the end of every virtual legality video that I'm not your lawyer and this isn't legal advice is that every person's specific circumstances, every company, every publisher, every developer has to go and think about what they want done in their specific instance, what their specific needs are. And so templates, even those published by Raw Fury and that are being used by them are still going to be modified by them to cover any specific detail. A second caveat, the contract outlines a lot of things, but it doesn't give the full picture of what we or other publishers or other developers do. You will still have to read, talk, and discuss with publishers as to what level of support they supply and in which areas. And this is another area we've talked about a lot in virtual legality. The words on the page are the words on the page. We will see as part of this document that they are going to promise their best efforts to do something. That still requires you to trust that you understand what the company's best efforts actually are. Do they have contacts in the various territories in which you wish to sell your product? Do they have experience doing so? What's the nature of their officership, their management, the contacts you're going to have with them directly? The contract is the boundaries of what each side promises to one another, but it doesn't help establish what your day-to-day operations look like. And so you always have to understand what your partner is going to do. You always have to enter into an agreement of any kind with a modicum of trust because there's always loopholes and always a way around certain things if the other side isn't trustworthy, if what they are is a bad actor, as a phrase as we like to use here in virtual legality. And so this caveat is also warranted. What we're going to be looking at is a form document, a development and publishing agreement that they have thankfully put up here for the world to see. And in all honesty, while I scroll down this, you might think, wow, this looks like a lot of legalese and it's pretty long. This is a very short publishing document. It's really only in substance about a dozen pages long. I think we're going to finish on page 12 before we get to signatures and appendices. And so it's the kind of document that we can easily talk about, talk through here in virtual legality. Now, I don't want to bore you all to tears. I don't want to just go through this document line by line like you might if you were doing this for yourself, for your own company, which I always recommend with a lawyer in their offices or or now in 2021 by Zoom call. But I did think that we could talk about the substance of virtually every area of this contract in a long form series. So this is part one of that proposed long form series, Owning the Game. Now, some of these titles are putting in one basket a lot of disparate kind of thoughts. We're actually going to talk about the introduction to the agreement, as well as the definitions that are used in the agreement as part of this video. But my hope is that by taking this and putting it into bite-sized chunks that you can listen to, read on your own, react to, reflect upon, that it is going to make it more available to everyone that might be considering these contracts, what a contract looks like, and the overall scope and breadth of what you are discussing when you are entering into a publishing agreement at all. With that as our introduction to this new 2021 long form series here on virtual legality, let's dive in. On your screen, you see a couple of sections from this agreement. We're actually gonna be talking about, I believe it's one, two, three, four, six, and seven, uh, perhaps as the baseline, the foundational piece of this agreement, owning the game, where the intellectual property in this game goes, how it's distributed, as well as talking about the definitions that are going to be used really throughout this video series. Now, one of the problems that we always have as lawyers and certainly as clients, as principals that are trying to work through one of these agreements without that legal background, is the fact that there's going to be a lot of defined terms. There's going to be a lot of capitalized words 
throughout the document that are going to have a specific meaning. There's always a question, do you put that at the front? Do you put that at the end? In every case, you're probably going to have to reference the definition page when you come up against one of these terms that you haven't used in a while in any of the sections of the agreement. So we're going to go through these really holistically. But in each video where we wind up talking about one of these terms, such as maybe the advances on funding, we're probably going to have to refer back to what the contours are of that term. And so just like a lawyer, you're going to see how we have to cross-reference and think about these sections separately. Now let's start with the introduction. This is a development and publishing agreement. So first line, we learn a little something about this agreement. This is labeled as development and publishing. Doesn't have to be. Development here implies that Raw Fury would like to participate in funding and maybe more in the actual development of the product itself. You can have just a publishing agreement where you say, hey, I've got a finished game. We don't know how to sell it. You guys are in the business of selling things. Let's just enter into a flat publishing agreement and you can get this out the door. One of the problems with that is that it has to be a perfect match for your publishing partner. They have to want what you are selling in a way that maybe they can help contour around if you are actually involved in the development process with them. Either way, this agreement contemplates that they are going to be a part of that development process in some fashion. What fashion will that be? We'll see as we read through the document and continue in this series. It's entered into, as of this date, the effective date. You see that capitalized. They will reference that in various places. By and between Raw Fury as the publisher and developer as the developer. Now, this is a placeholder, right? This is a form document. This will actually have the name of the company when it's actually there. They, they kind of concept out here that it's a limited liability corporation, uh, an LLC, uh, but it could be an, uh, an incorporated entity. It could be something else, depending on what country you're talking about, what jurisdiction you're talking about. The publisher and the developer together are called the parties, capital P parties. So we now know what we're looking at. These are some of the most important definitions. When you see publisher, it's Raw Fury. When you see developer, it's the video game company. And when you see party, it's either of them without distinction between them. Whereas publisher and developer wish to enter into this agreement whereby developer shall create and develop a game, project something, and publisher shall publish the game on the terms and conditions set forth in this document. Now, therefore, the parties agree as follows. Uh, with a little bit of color that is a little non-standard uh, for corporate publishing agreements, but Raw Fury likes to add a little bit of personality into their documents. There's no problem with that, but it is a little bit unusual. So just in this introductory paragraph, you get the definitions of the parties. You get this first recital, which is not legally operative. It doesn't actually create rights or obligations on the part of either party. It just helps people reference this document when they have to go and figure out where is the thing where we agreed to publish this game. They can look at the recitals five years down the line and say, oh, this is the one that I was looking for. Now here we've got some definitions. So the term of this agreement is effectively perpetual. This agreement shall become effective from the effective date and shall be in full effect perpetually or until such time that it is terminated by one or both parties in accordance with articles of this agreement. Now, if you were looking, you, you probably saw how long the marriage, part eight of this document, we're actually gonna be talking about term and termination towards the end. This list of chapters is largely, but not entirely reflective of the order that these materials are presented in this document. But right now, the baseline that you can take just from the definition section is that this is not a term agreement. It's not one year. It's not three years. This is intended to be perpetual unless one or the other party terminates. And we will have to see what rights those parties have to terminate the agreement and on what conditions that can take place. Territory. Publisher shall have the exclusive right to publish, distribute, and market the game 
and the ancillary products, both capitalized terms, worldwide without any limitations. You see, I've highlighted two words here, exclusive and worldwide. Exclusive is very important. If you're looking at one of these documents, you want to track whether whatever right you're giving is exclusive or non-exclusive. And with one important understanding that a lot of people miss, when you give a right away exclusively, it is exclusive against yourself as well, right? So if you give a right to use the name of your game exclusively to another party, you technically don't have that right to use the name of the game yourself, whether it's on your website or elsewise. We will see that covered in part as part of this document, but you have to be careful when you have that word exclusive and understand that you're giving away the right entirely to the other party. Here, a publisher. Now, the actual territory, the geographic and physical territory they're discussing is worldwide. This could have said in the US and Canada or the European Union or any combination thereof. It instead says the globe. You will occasionally see in documents like this some more grand pronouncements about the universe, the multiverse, every dimension now known or he, or to be discovered, whatever it is that the lawyer in question likes to put as a little bit of color here. For purposes of the year 2021, this effectively means everywhere. Now, the platform the developer has to deliver the game for is PC. Now, this is actually described in a slightly odd way. It's PC and then publishers shall have the rights for basically everything else as well as platforms that are released in the 10 years following the game's release date, the successors to the Series X and the PlayStation 5. Or if this were written a little bit a while ago, the PlayStation 5 and Series X themselves as successors to the Xbox One and PlayStation 4. Publisher has the rights to those, but developer is only really listed as having to deliver the game for PC as part of the document. They also say that we will deliver it as otherwise agreed. This is essentially not a terribly necessary component of an agreement because you can always agree to amend an agreement and change what would be the delivery term here. But it's sometimes useful to kind of signal that both parties are at least contemplating that there might be other platforms or other things we would want to develop the game for. There's also, as part of this platform, a little bit of substance. Publisher may request, in cooperation with the developer, who shall not unreasonably deny such a request, third-party porting and or development of game where the cost of such work shall be deducted from gross revenue. So as part of the platform concept, the publisher itself can go and hire someone to, po to port this PC game over to the PlayStation 5. And the developer will work with the publisher and they'll help set the budget, hopefully. And they will be mutually at that table negotiating what that contract looks like. But... The cost of that porting will come right off the top of the money that the developer gets. So it makes sense when we're talking about mutuality that developers should have a seat at that table. Ordinarily, if I'm in the developer's shoes, rather than cooperation, I would like to see consent required here, that the developer has to consent to what an agreement for third-party porting looks like. Uh, that's kind of implied here with the notion that they can't unreasonably deny a request uh, but it's not really as strong of a language as I would like for developer. Maybe that doesn't bother you. It really depends on the individual circumstances of the game that you're making. Then we have ancillary products. We already saw this term in capital letters defined earlier in one of the other definitions. These are products designed to support and or promote the game using, by way of example only, the names, renderings, dialogue, sound effects, or screenshots from the game. Now, including without limitation, so this list is not exclusive. This is just trying to give the flavor for what we're talking about here. Books, comics, music, animations, animated GIF files, webisodes, clothing, posters, novelties, and strategy guides of every kind and nature whatsoever. 
So these really are the things that are supporting the game. The books, the comics, maybe a soundtrack uh, CD or soundtrack made available on Spotify or iTunes or wherever. Strategy guides, things along those lines. It's not really aimed at uh, DLC packs, microtransactions, expansion sequels. And we'll see that that becomes a bit of a language issue as part of this episode of the series. Now, there's a minimum marketing guarantee, so we can already start to get a flavor for when we're talking about funding, which will again be a later chapter in this series, that the publisher is agreeing that an amount set at X amount of dollars will be committed to spending on marketing and distribution activities as determined by the publisher. Now, this is important, that minimum marketing guarantee concept. We will see that the publisher is going to agree in this agreement, and this is standard for a publisher to do, that it will use its best efforts to maximize revenue, to get this thing out there. And the economics lines up. This is, as we will also see, this is a 50-50 split. So each side is incentivized to make the most money possible with this product on the market. But you also want, if you're a developer, to see something quantifiable. You want to see the publisher committing in some way to what best efforts actually are. And in this case, you could say, well, you promise that you'll spend at least 50 grand marketing this thing, or depending on if it's a bigger game, more money than that but you promise that it will be at least that much money, you'll account for that. And in an ideal world, in this agreement, you'd be able to audit that and they would have to show where they spent the money to meet this obligation that we'll see covered when we're talking more specifically about funding. Then you see advanced concepts. This is the development portion of the development and publishing agreement. You see an initial advanced concept. It's some amount of money to be invoiced on the effective date. We're gonna hand over some amount of money when you sign up with us. A monthly payment of some portion of money paid out for X number of months, totaling X number of dollars. And this will be together, the initial payment and the monthly payments, a total principal amount. Now, when you see the word principal, you should immediately be thinking about debt, about promissory notes, about bank loans, whatever it might be that makes you think about debt. When they say total principal amount, we will see this in full color when we get to the funding chapter. The sum of initial advance and additional advances, number X in total, in addition to any adjustments made to additional advances after the signing of this agreement. Long, legal, easy way of saying all that money we advanced to you, that is going to be debt owed back to us. And at what interest rate? That's where you see this markup term. 15% markup to publisher calculated on total principal amount. So you're going to owe not just the amount that they paid you, but 15% plus that number. And that's going to be something that you're going to have to consider on an economic basis. Can you get that money cheaper? Is 15% a good deal? I will tell you it's a pretty high number, but it depends on what the risk profile for your game is, how they're putting money in your company, and what risk they think they have in putting that money in your company. So that's going to be one of those areas. Whenever you talk about money, interest rates, percentages like this one, that you're going to want to focus on and really be aware of where the money is moving and why and what risk you have. Now, the vision is basically how they describe what your game is going to be. It's a written description of the game concept, high-level design, and goals that developer and publisher have mutually set for the game, inserted as Appendix A to this agreement. Now, there isn't an Appendix A in the form because this is designed to be used by Raw Fury to tweak and change and modify for every game publishing agreement that they might have. So we don't get a sample of what Appendix A might look like, but we can imagine it. It's a bit of a light game design document that's going to establish what the sides have agreed to in terms of what is going to be delivered on that final delivery date, which we see referenced next. Developers shall no later than on date 
deliver to publisher a gold master for platform. So as this is currently drafted, there will be a date certain, a year hence, two years hence, whatever it might be, that we agree is going to be the development time for this game, that you have to deliver a gold master final ready-to-publish version on the PC of this game whose vision you described in Appendix A. Now, the gross revenue is a concept that's going to attach to our sharing of profits. That's the total invoice value of sales received by publisher attributable to sales and licenses of the game or any ancillary products. That's your posters, your strategy guides, your soundtracks. And basically, it means all the money that we received for the sale of your stuff. And the publisher share of that money or of net revenues, more specifically, we'll get to that when we talk about profit sharing, is 50%. When we get to net revenues, 50% is going to go to the publisher, 50% is going to go to you. It's 50-50. You see that reference to mutuality across the Raw Fury website, and it does seem to bear fruit here in their sample publishing agreement. Service spend is another concept kind of closely related to the funding spend that we saw described in the definitions earlier. A maximum amount up to the sum of X dollars to be spent by publisher on additional services for the game up to its release date, including but not limited to quality assurance, localization, voiceover, age rating, platform verification, developer kits, porting, team travel, fan events, and PR. Now, interestingly, you see here porting. This is the kind of thing that you might flag if you're the lawyer for a developer. Say, hey, we already covered porting up here. We need to make sure it's not doubled up in service spend because when we get to talking about the funding and the obligations of the publisher, we will see that service spend comes right off the top. That's why you see it as a maximum to protect the developer. We promise we won't spend more than $50,000 on this, but we have to spend this money in the way that we think is appropriate to get into the market, to get that platform cert, to get quality assurance, whatever it might be. And that money that we spent, we get back first before we start talking about splitting revenues. The gold master, which you saw referenced as part of the final delivery date definition, is what you would expect it to be. A release candidate milestone, which passes all publishers and platform requirements. It is considered the finished product locked and ready to be reproduced and sold. Gold masters are not necessarily bug-free, no piece of software really is, but bugs they contain are not considered serious enough to block production or play. This is a very fair definition of what this milestone should be. And overall, in these definitions themselves, you see presented a fairly fair publishing agreement. Intellectual property rights is the last definition here, and basically it means everything that you ordinarily think about when you think about intellectual property rights. Patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets, know-how, technology, software, and if we missed anything in that list of words, any other intellectual property created under law. So when you see us reference intellectual property rights, we mean everything that you think of when we're talking about knowledge creation, the creation of the video game, and everything that goes along with it. So just one section in, we see definitions and an introduction to this agreement that seem pretty fair, that are overall concepted at a fairly mutual publishing agreement. You do get into certain issues, which, hey, is 15% too expensive for advanced money. Maybe you should seek another financing source. We will talk more about that later in this series. But overall, the definitions don't ring any alarm bells. That's always a good sign. Then we get into section two, good faith. The parties enter into this agreement in good faith, meaning that the parties shall treat and deal with each other honestly, fairly, and in good faith, and shall not destroy any rights of the other party to receive any benefits of this agreement. In layman's terms, the spirit of this agreement is built on the notions of mutual respect and trust, where both publisher and developer intend to fully collaborate, exchange ideas, and mutually support one another in an effort to maximize the benefits of both parties 
and lay down a foundation for a long-term fruitful relationship. Now, if you've been in virtual legality for a while, you might remember we did a video on the Dragonlance lawsuit in which the Wizards of the Coast folks uh, wound up getting into a bit of trouble because they just refused to even approve anything related to a contract that they had entered into to create Dragonlance books with the authors of those books. And we talked in that video about the notion of good faith and fair dealing, that every contract is going to have certain approval rights of one or both of the parties. You'll even see that in this agreement. But as an overall baseline rule in the United States, every contract, regardless of whether there's a paragraph like this one in it, is governed by notions of good faith and fair dealing. That we don't want to see one party or another just defrauding the other party, knowing that they can use a provision that seems sensible. Hey, we should have a reasonable approval right of X. And using it to just say, we're never ever going to approve this, so don't bother sending us anything. And thereby effectively trying to get out of the agreement without having negotiated for a termination right that would allow them to put themselves in that position. This says essentially what good faith and fair dealing means as a baseline rule, but puts it out in black and white on the contract itself. Now, this might be because Raw Fury is not an American company. They might be dealing with the international companies a lot that maybe don't have that good faith and fair dealing concept built into their common law jurisprudence. Either way, it's good from a tonal perspective to have is really the first operative portion of the agreement, not including the definitions, that says, hey, we agree that regardless of what is in this contract, we're not going to try to mess each other up, that we're not going to try to use loopholes or the space between spaces in the lines in this agreement to try to benefit ourselves at the expense of the other party. If you're a small developer, this is very comforting language because you were never going to have or be put in a position to really take advantage of a publisher. Generally speaking, publishers are going to have more resources. They're going to have more lawyers. They're going to have drafted this document in the first place. And so when you come out with a section like this, as Raw Fury has done, it's designed to put the developer at ease and to set the tone for the contract. I think it's a great thing, even in the case where in the United States, you probably don't need it. This is probably not doing anything extra that isn't already implied by signing a document in the first place. Then we get to the first really operative part of the document, the grant of license. Publisher will use its best efforts to maximize the revenue potential of the game for the mutual benefit of developer and publisher. Now you see here, I've highlighted the phrase best efforts. That's the phrase you're looking for if you are a developer. There's a couple of phrases that can be put here, commercially reasonable efforts. They'll try, they'll do their best, whatever it is that they might put in here. Best efforts is about the highest standard that you can get. It means that they will really use everything that they've got to try to maximize the revenue potential for the game. Now, with that being said, that's the publisher obligation. The reason it's in this, the grant of license section, is to justify the license that the developer is giving back to the publisher. Therefore, developer hereby grants to publisher an exclusive right, there's that word again, during the term and throughout the territory, so perpetually and across the world, to publish, produce, reproduce, perform, promote, advertise, ex export, import, rent, license, sublicense, translate, localize, manufacture, package, market, produce, merchandise, distribute through any channels, including electronic distribution by download, display, sell, lease, and otherwise exploit the game, including any ancillary products 
on the platform. Now, that's a long list, right? This is what lawyers get paid for. If you've been in virtual legality for a while, you know we've covered the overall rights that a copyright holder has in the, in the intellectual property they create. And this is no different. The developer is going to have the full intellectual property rights in what they create. And so in order to enter into an agreement like this one, they have to give certain rights to their contract partner in order for that contract partner to do what they are supposed to do under this agreement. And in this case, that's market the darn thing maximize the revenue potential of the game it, through marketing, through some of the other stuff that we will see as part of this agreement. And in order to do that, developer gives an exclusive right to do all these things. Now, note also what we talked about earlier in this video, that exclusive right is exclusive to developer as well. So developer can't do these things unless publisher otherwise consents to it. And that might wind up being a negotiation point in the contract. Sometimes when you enter into an agreement where you have marketing relationship with another party, the party that's actually creating the thing wants to have certain rights themselves as well, wants to be able to go to conventions, wants to be able to do whatever it is that they want to do really on their own and outside of the purview of the publisher. That can be something that is discussed. But even though this list is long, nothing really jumps out as unnecessary for what the publisher is supposed to do. Publish it, sure, that's obvious enough. Produce it, they have to be able to make the discs. Reproduce it, make the discs again. Perform it and promote it means, hey, putting those things on advertisements, having them maybe on their website, their Twitch channel, conventions, whatever it might be. Advertise it, sure. Export, import, that's really the same kind of concept as selling it. Rent, license, sub-license, we start to get into interesting areas here. What do you want to do, Raw Fury, when you talk about sublicensing my intellectual property? What what do you mean by that? And that's where you have a discussion, right? You get on the phone, you're walking through the contract, you say, what, what do you need this for? This makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe I'm sensitive to this concept because I got burned on this before in a previous publishing relationship. You can have that conversation. Translate, localize, sure. Manufacture is really the same as produce. Package is very similar to that. Market, you see produce again. Hey, lawyers aren't perfect people, right? Produce is here twice. You don't need it twice, definitely. Merchandise, distribute, display, sell these. It's just trying to get everything that we need to get. And then ultimately with an umbrella term. Otherwise, everything that we might need. Otherwise, exploit the game. Nothing here jumps out as a red flag or an alarm bells, but... In any given circumstance, you might look at this list and say, hey, do you need everything there? Maybe we can pare this down. Certainly, we can get rid of the second produce. There's also continues by getting another license out from the developer. Developer also hereby grants to publisher a non-exclusive right throughout the territory to use and reproduce the object and source code. So this is the actual way the game functions, the piece of software. Now, that's non-exclusive. It needs to be non-exclusive because the developer is going to be working on this thing. And so they can't give away their rights to actually interact with the objects and source code of the product and an exclusive right to use the name of the game and any trademarks which may be applied for by developer at developer's sole cost and expense, unless otherwise agreed by the parties in writing, in accordance with the provisions of this agreement. Now, if you're paying attention, you note that there's a problem there. You've given an exclusive right to use the name of the game. I can't use the name of my own game. I can't tweet out the name of my game. I can't reference it on my website as the developer. Publisher doesn't really mean that, but they want to make sure that you can't give the name of the game to a different publisher, different marketing firm, whatever it might be. And so right after that sentence, you get an exception. However, publisher acknowledges that developer may, during the term and throughout the territory, exercise some of the exclusive rights granted to publisher for the sole purpose of marketing or promoting the game platform developer, publisher, and any other mutually beneficial cause, cause, causes, that should be clauses, subject to publisher's prior written consent. Such consent 
not to be unreasonably withheld. So you get an exception, but it's a close exception. So what you've got here is you've got the developer having the right to do all these things to market in accordance with the publisher, but with the publisher's permission. Now that publisher's permission in and of itself is then weakened by the next phrase that says, hey, we're not going to not give you permission unless there's a really good reason to do so. We can't unreasonably withhold it. Now we can on anything that it all looks like a reason to withhold it, withhold that consent. But otherwise you're allowed to use the name. You're allowed to market your stuff. You're allowed to get on Twitch. You're allowed to do all these various things as long as you get our prior written consent. And this is the kind of thing that a lawyer would sit down with you and say, okay, this is probably okay in terms of phraseology. This is probably okay in terms of concept. Nothing here in the grant of license section jumps out as especially problematic, but you developer need to know that if you want to do any of the things that you are currently doing before you enter into this agreement to market your product, that you probably need to go get written consent from the publisher before you do so. And to have that conversation really before you sign the agreement to say, hey, this is what I'd like to do. Is this going to be a problem? And if it's not going to be a problem, maybe you negotiate a specific written exception directly into the agreement, or you get a written side letter type consent at the same time that you sign up to the contract saying, this is what I want to do. The publisher has given me prior written consent immediately to do these things and everybody is happy and goes along on their merry way. Next, we get the intellectual property copyrights and documents section of this agreement. This is section four. You can read along. Of course, these will be linked in the description to the video. And this is why this section, this chapter of this series is entitled Owning the Game. Who owns the game is a very, very important question. You've seen this writ large in various news stories about trying to figure out what licenses we need to get, whether Bungie can leave or not, who owns various aspects of Halo or Destiny and these various types of things. And this is one of the things, one of the areas where Raw Fury really gives the developer as much as they can. Developers shall retain all intellectual property rights in and to the game. Now that's really full stop. We're going to get an inclusive list following there but that's super important. That's what you're looking for if you are the developer. You retain all IP related to the game. It is yours. This is solely a marketing agreement. And yes, they're going to make money on it if the game is successful, but you don't lose the rights to the game itself, including all original elements of design and game software and all rights in all source code, tools, technology, and other development aids embodied in and used in connection with the development of the game. Further, all rights not explicitly granted to publisher hereunder are reserved by developer. You see that phrase, all rights reserved. We've talked about that a lot in virtual legality, but this goes to the benefit of developer. Hey, if we didn't write this correctly, if there's something we didn't think about and it's a gray area, the gray area always goes to you. Ties go to the developer. And that, if you're a developer, is a very heartening paragraph to see. We keep the game, and if somehow this is written incorrectly or there's some ambiguous area, we get to keep those rights. For the avoidance of doubt, publisher wants to make sure it doesn't give away its own stuff. Publisher's existing intellectual property rights shall still be owned by publisher. Just because you make us a game, it doesn't mean you suck up our intellectual property. And that's totally justified for the publisher to write there. Overall, this section says developer gets its game. Further, as a bit of legalistic legalese here, it says... Each party shall execute and deliver the instruments and documents and take all actions and provide all assistance as may be reasonably necessary to confirm and carry out the intent and purposes of the agreement here. So if it becomes necessary at some point to clarify for someone that developer owns the intellectual property or a registration needs to occur in a specific jurisdiction to register a copyright and somebody has a question and says, hey, I think Raw Fury might own that. 
then Raw Fury agrees to say, no, no, developer owns that. And if there was some kind of controversy about a publisher tool of existing intellectual property rights, developer agrees to also do the same thing for the publisher. So overall, this is about as developer-friendly of a section on intellectual property as you are likely to see and speaks well to Raw Fury of trying to get to that mutuality that they talk about in their blog posts in general. Now we get to some other kind of specific restrictions. So we've already seen the definitions are pretty fair. There's a good faith component. The licenses make sense. The developer keeps its game, but publisher is going to be investing in this stuff. Publisher is going to try to be using those best efforts, spending money to sell this game. So the developer has to agree to certain things that you have to keep track of if you're on the developer side. And certainly if you're a publisher are the kind of concepts that you're going to want to consider having in an agreement of your own. Here, it's competing games. Developers shall not directly or indirectly. Now, that bit of language is something that you can fight over. What does it mean to indirectly develop a video game? Directly or indirectly is a bit of language that fits in in a lot of places in legal contracts. It might not fit in so well here. It's certainly the kind of thing that you could negotiate if I were on a developer side. I might strike this out. Hey, developer shall not develop, manufacture, or distribute a game of the same genre and mechanics as the game for any party other than publisher until the date of one year following the date of release of the game. Now, there's a couple of things to note there, right? So we already talked about directly or indirectly. The next part is that it's a little bit wishy-washy, and this is not something that you can necessarily solve in the contract. There's nothing wrong with the way this is labeled, but you can see the ambiguity kind of built in. What is the same genre and mechanics, i.e., similar in theme, look, and feel mean when you're making a second game. If you're making a game with giant robots and it's a third-person over-the-shoulder adventure action game, and then you want to make a game with giant robots that it's a strategic role-playing game, that's not the same mechanics. It is the same genre. Does the genre and mechanics both have to be the same to get you in trouble? What if you treat it with a similar look and feel in the UI? Uh, Maybe naming conventions, that'll always get you in trouble. These are the kinds of things that are going to present a big, giant gray area. And then certainly if you were sitting in my office and you had this contract already signed and you were thinking about making a second game, I'd say, well, you know, what are you doing? And we can try to isolate out whether or not it's flying pretty close to the sun. And sometimes you take that risk, sometimes you don't. There's not really a better way to say this without directly referring to the vision statement. And maybe that would be a little bit better, something that exactly matches or matches in scope whatever's appearing on Appendix A. But at the end of the day, you have to not compete with Raw Fury on your next game for one year following the date of release of the game. Now, that's another choice that might be a little bit opaque to people. The date for this doesn't have to be one year from release. It could have been one year from the effective date, but we don't know when the game will actually get out there. It could have been one year after the term of the agreement. You'll never compete with us as long as we're signed up together. It's not that. It's kind of a middle-of-the-road compromise position and one that makes a modicum of sense to me reading it. Now, note the next line. The parties acknowledge and agree that the foregoing restriction is of the essence of this agreement and is necessary for the protection of publishers' ongoing business. That sentence is effectively required by court decisions that don't love non-competition provisions. In general, especially in the United States, the court system doesn't love you having a provision in your contract that says you can't do something in the free market. So what you have to do is you have to say, and I think it's justified here, the publisher is certainly investing in the success of the developer in terms of this agreement, is that hey, we are invested, a competitive act within this time frame is reasonable, and it would hurt us. It would hurt our investment. It would hurt those kinds of good faith and fair dealing notions. And so the court should enforce this even if 
it generally doesn't like enforcing non-competition provisions. So this is a necessary piece of language. I think it would be enforced in most places in the United States. It might need a little bit more clarity around genre and mechanics. I might like to see a cross-reference to the vision in Appendix A, but otherwise, the most important thing for a lawyer, for a developer, for a publisher is to know that this paragraph is in there, right? That Section 6 says you can't do this thing with the assets under your command, in your disposal, at developer. And you need to know where these restrictions are, what potential exposure items there are for breaching these kinds of things. And that's an important part of any analysis of an agreement of this type. Finally, the last section I want to talk about, and this the first section of this series, is additional publishing rights. Very similar to the competing games concept. Publisher wants to make sure that developer stays involved with publisher if it's going to do something in this space. And this is part of what publisher is buying. It's, again, very important for the developer to be aware of because it restricts their future activities. Here it says, developer acknowledges that this agreement obligates publisher to perform activities and make financial investments that may benefit developer beyond the scope of this agreement. Now, what do they mean by that? Why? Well, as they continue, as developer, with the exception of the rights granted under this agreement, retains all copyrights and all other intellectual property rights in and to the game. Said another way, look, we're giving you all the intellectual property rights of the game. We're not trying to claim any of that ourselves, but we're going to market this for you. We're going to proceed with this relationship for you. And so if you make a sequel to your game, you will have benefited by the growth of eyeballs, the growth of audience that occurred on the original, and we think we should be a part of that conversation. So what do they ask for? They say, during the term, publishers shall have a right of first refusal, which is a framework that I've highlighted here. A right of first refusal effectively means you have to offer them the rights to do whatever it is we're going to talk about in this section before you offer it to any third party. So during the term of this agreement, which remember is basically perpetual right now until we read about what term and termination looks like, publishers shall have a right of first refusal for the exclusive worldwide publishing rights, the same publishing rights they have under this agreement, to sequels, add-ons, mission packs, and DLCs as these terms are commonly understood in the industry, in addition to all other platform versions of the game not covered under platform. Any such right of first refusal must be exercised in writing within 30 days of publisher's receipt of a written request to act by developer. So the way this works logistically is developer says, hey, we're finally ready to make a sequel to our game. We have to send in a notification to publisher saying we want to make this sequel. And they have 30 days to say we want to publish that sequel or to ignore it or to say we don't want to publish that sequel for you. Now, there's a couple of interesting things in here as well. You see they get this right of first refusal. It doesn't actually describe what the agreement would look like. Ordinarily, I would like to see this say on terms that are similar or substantially similar to what appear in this agreement on commercially reasonable terms is to be agreed by the parties. Whatever phraseology would go there, we get a right of first refusal with some contours as to what the underlying agreement might look like. That isn't presented here. I think you can assume it would follow the basic terms of this agreement, but lawyers, we don't like that word, assume. And so certainly if we were sitting down with Raw Fury, I would like to see a few additional contours here. Now maybe, maybe developer says, hey, that's a pretty big chilling effect on what we want to do with our own assets. Maybe it's just not working out great with you, but it hasn't really gotten to the level of breach. We don't want to work with you anymore. We appreciate your efforts, but we want to go in a different direction. Raw Fury, to their credit, actually has an out clause here. They say, during the term, developer can at any time request in writing to replace publisher's right of first refusal, as stated above in section 7A, that's this one right here, with a fixed and perpetual revenue share of 5% of gross revenues received 
by developer. So what's happening here right now, we haven't gotten to the section talking about revenue share, but it's set at 50-50. They say that you can instead give us an extra 5% and then you can do whatever you want with your DLCs and mission packs and exclusive worldwide publishing rights to sequels, et cetera, et cetera. Now, one problem I have with this section is that capitalized term gross revenues. If we actually go up and we look at gross revenues in the definition section of this agreement, we see that it's defined as the total invoice value of sales received by publisher attributable to sales and licenses of the game or any ancillary products. In other words, it's not a terribly good fit for what we're talking about in the context of we don't want to publish our sequel with you. The gross revenue definition is already about money that's received by publisher. And then further, it's only about money received by publisher attributable to sales of the game or any ancillary products. Now, you might think sequels and DLCs and things could fit under the definition of ancillary products, but not really. Those products that is listed here, books, comics, strategy guides, posters, that kind of thing, aren't really supporting the original game. They aren't promoting the original game. They are an offshoot. They're a derivative work of the original game, but don't really easily fit in that definition. So gross revenue is a pretty bad definition to use here. Now, that doesn't mean you could get out of the agreement. We're talking about good faith and fair dealing again. If you agree to give them 5% more of something, that'll still attach, but it's unclear what it should attach to when you use the capitalized gross revenues term here because it's not going to attach ordinarily to your sequels in your DLC, except they add in the next sentence that says, these are, for example, revenues or other financial transactions generated by sequels, add-ons, mission packs, and DLCs in the same fashion that they refer to their right of first refusal. That doesn't make a ton of sense for this defined term. So again, if I were sitting in the room, I'd say, okay, this needs to reflect what we're talking about. You're talking about 5% of the revenues we get on the next stuff. We need another defined term. We need uh, some kind of buyout reference to the actual right of first refusal. We define that term separately to hit what you want to hit. It's not unreasonable to ask for this, but it doesn't work as the document is currently presented. And we clean that up. Overall, conceptually though, I still want to give Raw Fury credit. They don't have to give this out. They could just have you have a right of first refusal. We get 30 days to say yay or nay, and you're stuck with us. Instead, they say, hey, it's not always going to be a great fit. We don't want you to be stuck with us. So give us 5% of the next sale stuff, and we're not going to work for it. But we did earn you some money by getting you marketing eyeballs and things on your original copy. So we deserve that 5%. And in all honesty, it's a fairly reasonable ask from Raw Fury. Developers shall, upon request, describe adequate accounting procedures that will allow publisher to audit and verify developers' accounting of revenues. Publisher cannot withhold agreement if verification and auditing procedures are reasonable and believable. Now, this provision is important because it says, hey, if the money isn't coming in to us, we don't know that it's coming in at all. So if you're going to exercise this 5% concept, you have to deliver to us how you're going to keep track of the money that you receive for your sequel, as an example, and we're going to be able and allowed to audit that number. Now, again, I would like to see a little bit more contours around this audit concept. It can be no more than once per year. It's going to take place during reasonable business hours. It's not going to confuse our people or otherwise distract from our operations. Those kinds of contours are normal. I would probably ask for them if I were negotiating this contract myself. But the overall concept is not wrong. If the money isn't coming into us, we need to be able to make sure that we understand what the money is so you can't steal from us. And in a similar way, the developer should probably get an audit right that says, hey, if we're going to get 50% of those gross revenues or those net revenues, we need an accounting of what you netted against the gross. We need an accounting of the money actually coming in. And we need to be able to check it on a fairly reasonable level to make sure that money isn't, hey, just accidentally 
getting lost that would otherwise be owed to us, let alone being surreptitiously moved around uh, at your company. That audit right is normal and is one I would expect to see in this document. We will see if it in fact is. So that's the first part of this series going through a game publishing contract. I want to thank once again, Raw Fury for taking the steps of putting this out there. This is often uh, feeling a little bit naked if you're a corporation that's used to keeping these things pretty clandestine and confidential. Just going out there with these terms, having a guy on YouTube say, hey, you used produce twice isn't a great feeling, but I'm so happy that it's out there. I'm so happy we can have this discussion. And hopefully here in virtual legality, we can give a little bit more of a contour, a little bit more information, education, maybe entertainment about what these documents can look like because documents like this are controlling the video game industry, are controlling the relationships between publishers and developers, between developers and developers, publishers and publishers. And it's so important to understand the contractual framework for all of these things. This has been Virtual Legality for today, the first chapter of what I hope to be an ongoing series discussing the anatomy of a game publishing contract. If you like this video, please like, subscribe, share, tell folks we are having these conversations here. Tell them about the next nine videos in this series as they come out. I would love to hear from more of you. We're at 30,000 subscribers, uh, and we're looking forward to another big year in 2021 talking about business, law, pop culture, music, videos, music videos, <laughs> television, movies, and video games. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to this as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.